0: Good afternoon, you're listening to 90.7 FM, KALX. I'm Franklin, and welcome back to Perfect Crocs.
1: That's right, it's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. I'm Charles Lee. Coming up on today's show, we'll be exploring current topics in the world of science. In addition, we'll be talking with Barbara Oliver and Ira Haltman about their production of Petition, soon to be playing at the Aurora Theater. Also, we'll find out how the Grand Canyon was formed. So stay tuned for all this, plus the world-famous question of the week, coming right up. Here on Berkeley Rock.
0: to Berkeley i San Frankling.
1: And I guess that makes me Charles Lee. How are you doing, Frank?
0: Not too bad, Charles. Not too bad. Uh, beautiful weather these days, huh? It's
1: it's amazingly beautiful weather, and I can't imagine anything better than uh, science and uh, beautiful weather in the Bay Area.
0: Yes. Yeah, so good that my allergies are just acting up again.
1: You know, that's the best part. And, <laughs> and as an extra special bonus, this week I have SARS. SARS? SARS. Cool. Yeah.
0: The resistant kind, right? <laughs>
1: of course. You know, I think everyone should have it at least once in a while.
0: Yeah. Cough it up.
1: Yep. All so right. what's
0: new in science?
1: What is new in science? That is the perpetual question here at
0: uh, the question
1: of the week, the of the week uh, which we always try and answer, although hardly ever actually answering it, but we do like to ask it.
0: Just propose it. <laughs>
1: um, so there's an actually an interesting or- article that came out, uh, two groups of articles, one that's in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. Oh,
0: our favorite journal.
1: PNAS. PNAS. Of course, we love PNAS the extra special kind, and Journal of uh, Biological Chemistry. Uh, both of these have a very interesting um, article regarding uh, neuroglobulin. Ne- I'm sorry, neuroglobin. Neuroglobin? Yes. Is and, it like myoglobin? Uh, actually, it is kind of, a little bit. I guess that's perhaps why it's called that. It's mm-hmm. a uh, oxygen-binding protein, uh, but this is actually found in uh, the nerve areas, nerve cells, or around neurons, and it's thought to like help mediate the delivery of uh, oxygen yeah. to the to the brain.
2: Uh-huh.
1: Um, so this is interesting in itself, but apparently a bunch of researchers have extended this. They've looked at rat models of stroke.
2: Uh-huh.
1: So rats, I guess, who are stressed out and wondering what to do with their lives, uh, they, they also have stroke. Right. Um, and it turns out that uh, neuroglobin, based on their assays, seems to have a protective effect uh, with stroke.
0: So, does it supply uh, oxygen while like your body's in capacity or something?
1: That might be one possible. I guess if you have more of the neuroglobin, perhaps there's more oxygen coming on mm-hmm. even when uh, blood flow is restricted, nice. which might help. but uh, they really don't know the mechanism. Uh, they just did a kind of a really simple test. They just knocked out this neuroglobin using right. uh, what's called antisense technology, uh-huh. and they saw that basically rats who had stroke uh, who had a stroke without this gene basically suffered more damage.
0: Really? Yeah. It's very interesting. Yeah.
1: It's quite cool, and uh, I, I certainly hope I have enough of this because I'm sure I have strokes on a day. Uh, <laughs> but uh, I'm starting
0: to on my cholesterol. Right, right? In fact,
1: you know, in fact, I'm having one right now. So. Is that bad? It's always that bad. Um, but anyway, so this is uh, this was led by a group um, Sun and others. It's found in our favorite journal, PNAS, and also Journal of Biological Chemistry,
0: JBC. All right. Well, this uh, latest story concerns people who use SETI. SETI. You know SETI. Uh,
1: I I know SETI quite well. He's a good friend of mine. He he supplies me with all my drugs.
0: Uh, no, not that one. The uh, the search for extraterrestrial uh, life.
1: Yeah, same guy. Same guy. <laughs> no.
0: So you you've had some alien interactions. There. Oh,
1: I you know after after my interactions with him, everything's alien. I'll tell you what.
0: Yes, but um, <laughs> but uh, for those of you who are using uh, the SETI screensaver, it's been found that there's a a flaw in the system, and uh, potential hackers can uh, screw up your machine.
1: Oh, really? So
0: So what some researchers at Delft University figured out was uh, if they can trick your computer into uh, logging into a fake server, not the one here at UC Berkeley, they can uh, send uh, malicious commands into your computer.
1: Oh, wow. So is this uh, for all computers or just PCs or Macs or uh,
0: In fact, it turns out it's a flaw that's found in not just you know PCs and uh, Macs, but also for Linux and Unix systems oh, wow. as well.
1: Who would have thought that the search for extraterrestrial intelligence could be so uh, dangerous.
0: dangerous? Yes. So, uh, if anyone wants a patch, just go to the uh, SETI at Home website, just SETI.berkeley.edu, and you can get the latest patch for any of your operating systems.
1: Wow. What if it What if it's actually the aliens trying to uh, mess up your system?
0: Yeah. Maybe they've already uh, They've already They want us to. They're um, hiding. They're basically yes, hiding. They don't want us to see them.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Okay, well, Frank, so a uh, question I've always wondered is, where do babies come from?
0: Uh, from cranes, right?
1: I think so. The, the stork, I thought, delivered Oh, the stork? Yeah. Yeah. What about baby stars?
0: Baby stars? You need a female star and a male star, <laughs> and then you get a baby star, right? Is that right? That's how I get baby bikes. Oh,
1: right? okay. I think that's how how it works. Yeah. Well, don't they need, like, a little bit of music and a little dinner music? and a movie?
0: <laughs> yeah, that galactic harmony. <laughs>
1: <laughs> All kinds of cool things. Well, in, in fact, it turns out that, uh, I guess, stars are actually formed in a number of things called uh, molecular clouds. Clouds. Yeah, so these clouds sort of form as sort of amorphous uh, items, but then they start mm-hmm. to condense and right. start to give birth to a lot of stars. Right. Um, but it turns out there are a group of clouds, uh, these type of molecular clouds, which are actually resistant to forming new stars. Really? Yeah, these these particular group of clouds called the Bok globules. So
0: they must have something like anti-star-forming uh, uh, agent in there or something. Yeah, huh?
1: I think it's non 9 or something. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't know. But
0: uh, Galactic contraceptives.
1: <laughs> it might be that avlomil that we got uh, oh, yeah. in the mail a while back. Uh, which, by the way, in case the avlomil people are listening, we, we would like some more of that. Uh, it's quite. Yeah,
0: we've been getting tons of requests. It's, it's yeah. kind of incredible.
1: And, and we're actually making a lot of money... Uh, selling it on the side. But anyway, <laughs> uh, Anyway, so these Bach globules, apparently, they don't uh, they don't give rise to these stars. And uh, so a group of researchers led by Lada and others uh, were wondering, actually, why this is. So they studied one particular Bach globule called uh, Barnard 68, uh-huh. I guess with a name like Barnard, no wonder he's not giving... <laughs> But anyway, uh, so they they used the the radio telescope in Spain, uh, IRAM, and what they found out was that there's uh, basically turbulence and thermal forces are essentially keeping these clouds apart from actually condensing into stars and things like that. Interesting
0: turbulence.
1: Turbulence. It's all about turbulence. A
0: turbulent relationship. Huh?
1: Yeah, that that always seems to prevent Mix things up. <laughs> <laughs> um, so anyway, they found all kinds of cool things. They also found that this cloud is actually kind of oscillating in a weird way,
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh, based on they think it might have been like an ex-supernova that might have sent a shockwave through it. But so it's oscillating, but it's not giving rise to stars. Um, anyway, so if people want to look at this, uh, it's featured in the recent edition of the Astrophysics Journal.
0: Okay, well, finally, this uh, story is a little bit closer to home.
1: A little bit closer to home than uh, some stellar clouds. Yeah, Mars. Oh, Mars. Mars is a really good friend of ours. Mm. Right next door, in fact.
0: Men are from Mars, right?
1: And women are from... Venus? Is it Venus? I believe so. I I thought it was somewhere else, but...
0: Mm, You mean Jupiter?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, Venus is certainly far too inhospitable for anybody.
0: Yes, yes. So is Mars. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, have you thought about moving there one of these days?
1: I've always aspired to actually move to Mars. Mars is such a great place.
0: Mars, yeah, Yeah. where all the guys hang out. (laughs) But um, it turns out, uh, recent measurements from the Odyssey spacecraft suggest that the radiation might be a bit too high there.
1: A little bit too high for... For habitation... Oh really? Okay. Yeah,
0: it, and in fact Mars does not have the uh, the Van Allen belt, the right. uh, the magnetic fields around the Earth that protect us from the uh sun's solar
1: winds and stuff.
0: Solar of winds. So that makes it a little bit more difficult. In fact, the ra- the average radiation there is about 2.5 times what um what astronauts would get at a low Earth orbit around the Earth. Oh really? Yeah.
1: Okay. And so.
0: um you know when when the uh, solar storms from the sun emit, they can last up to a week, so that would not be a good thing. No,
1: I don't think so. Unless you want to get a really nice tan. Yeah. Which sometimes you just might.
0: <laughs> Maybe yeah. What a good idea, huh? Scientists were originally hopeful that we could send uh, humans there and start some sort of colony. water's mm-hmm. uh, Water's not a problem. In fact, it turns out that the uh, the northern hemisphere has about three foot of ice covering it. So oh, okay.
1: So. Water not a problem, down.
0: but the radiation seems to be the major point now.
1: Hmm. So people could just walk around in radiation suits and they'd be all right.
0: Yeah, except I don't think they're so perfect. They've uh, they still permeate some uh, radiation oh, really? and over time. You, you probably would get fried.
1: I suppose so. <laughs> Always <laughs> something. Too bad, huh? So could we, could we just like live underground or something? Is that?
0: But that's the idea right now. That if you build colonies below the soil, maybe uh-huh. a couple of feet, that should probably protect the uh, the humans for a oh. sufficient time. But okay. Well, time will tell, I guess. It's just kind of
1: like living in the lab, really. <laughs> No daylight, kind of changed
0: When's the last time you saw the sun?
1: <laughs> it's rare, but at least uh, now with daylight savings, see you a little more often.
0: Yes, this helped a little
1: bit. Yeah.
0: I guess if anyone wants to know more uh, about the Mar- Mars Odyssey spacecraft or the uh, Mars mission itself, they can go to the NASA website, www.nasa.gov.
1: Darn, I was really hoping to vacation there, but I guess Rio will just have to do.
0: Maybe we can just do some shopping there next time.
1: Yeah. Well, that's all
0: for this week's look at current developments in the world of science. You're listening to Berk the Grox here on 90.7 FM. Joining us a little bit later is Barbara Oliver and Ira Heltman, who will be talking about their play, Partition. So stay tuned. Welcome back to Berkeley Rocks. Well, as you may or may not know, Ramanujan was one of the world's most influential and probably least known mathematicians of the 20th century. While he did not have any formal schooling, it's been said that he founded his theorems from gods talking to him during his sleep. Unfortunately, Ramanujan did not live to the age of 30, but he did travel to England and work with the mathematician, G.H. Hardy. Well, one play that examines the relationship between these two mathematicians is Partition. Today, joining us on Berkeley Grok are Barbara Oliver, the director of the Aurora Theater, and Ira Hopman, the playwright for Partition. Mrs. Oliver, Mr. Hopper, Hopman, sorry. thanks for joining us on Berkeley Grok's. Our pleasure. <laughs> Mr. Hauptmann, uh, first of all, could you tell us what Partition is about and uh, how you came about writing it?
3: Well, Partition is about a couple of great mathematicians, uh Ramanujan, self-taught genius uh from India and um G H Hardy, a professor at uh, Cambridge uh who brought him to England in the early 20th century to uh, to work with him. And um they were opposites mathematically. Uh Ramanujan was very intuitive, Hardy very logical and, and rigorous and uh, together they uh well they did some remarkable mathematics uh but the relationship uh, eventually fell apart and there was depression and suicide attempts and the illness and uh, Ramanujan eventually uh, had to go back to India um, so it seemed to me a a, a great story um something that was great and something that was wonderful, and then soured somehow. And um, two very different personalities, so it just seemed to be something uh, worth ex- exploring in a drama.
0: How did you first hear about this uh, story?
3: I guess I, I first heard about them when I was in high school, actually, which was a long time ago. Mm. <laughs> uh, which was sort of the last time I was I was any good at mathematics. But um, I I just I just read about them, and um, I, I just had a Continuing interest, and uh, and one day, much later in life, I, I thought, well, there's there's a play here that has to be written. Well,
0: that's pretty interesting. Um, actually, I never heard about Ramanujan until um, I came across him on an internet news group one day. Mrs. Oliver, uh, let's turn over to you now. Um, how did you come about assembling the cast for this play?
4: Well, it was very interesting. Ara sent me the script, and I read it and liked it a great deal. He and I had some email correspondence, and um, I told him rather quickly that we would like to do a reading of the play, which we did. Um, then we decided to to do a workshop, and that just means that we brought together um, the playwright and some actors and a dramaturg and me as director uh, for about a week, and we read the play and talked about it, and I did a a, a bit of a staged reading for an invited audience mm-hmm. just to see how it all worked. Mm-hmm. Um, I felt um, more strongly, positively about this play than almost any other original I've ever that's ever come across my desk. But I've also done enough originals to know that, uh, an original just simply being a play that's never been produced before. Right. Uh, I've done enough of them by now to know that it's always better to do a workshop first to kind of, uh, be sure you're all thinking in the same direction and that kind of thing before you launch in, you know. And it was, it was very useful.
0: Uh, what do you like most about the story?
4: Oh, lots of things. Um, I think the, the the close friendship and relationship between these two brilliant men who were so very, very different is the stuff that drama is made of, mm-hmm. you know. Um, the fact that uh, Ramanujan was, was Indian... Uh, intrigued me. Uh, I lived in India as a small child and um, have very warm memories of it. Mm -hmm. That's not a pun. It was warm, but that's not what I meant. Anyway, (laughs) um, uh, that part intrigued me. Um, I, I enjoy all things British. And I have to say that another thing that interested me was that I was so fascinated in a play about two mathematicians because as some people are alexim, a mathematical, I don't get it and I never have. But the romance and the, the, the dedication and the passion that these people feel for it opened a whole new world for me. And that was exciting. I like that. Uh,
0: Mr. Hauptmann. I was just wondering if you consulted any mathematicians uh, when you're writing this play.
3: No, I didn't. I didn't consult any mathematicians. Um, I I felt that my own background, limited as, as it is, um, uh, w- was there may have been a virtue in that limitation, put it that way. That is, um, if something had to be explained to me, then it probably wouldn't be something that should end up in the in the play. But if it was something that I sort of vaguely had a feeling for, then it probably would would be suitable. wouldn't be too too technical. Uh, you know, there there have been a lot of works about about scientists and mathematicians, a lot of plays and movies lately. I mean, we know the movie A Beautiful Mind, mm-hmm. and um, there was a play called uh, Oppenhagen by Michael Frayn, right, uh, right. about physicists, and uh, David Auburn's play Proof, uh, dealing with mathematics, award-winning plays on Broadway, Tom Stoppard's Arcadia, I mean, the list goes on and on.
0: Uh-huh. There's um, also Oxygen.
3: Uh, yeah. And, um, I, you know, I, I think that uh, writing about, about science and, and math, at least in, in my case, it, it allows me to pay homage to these geniuses while at the same time sort of compensating for my own lack of ability in that. I mean, it's, it's a way of saying, you, you people may be brilliant. You may be a lot smarter than I am, but, uh, but I have the last word. You're, you're, you're now characters in my play, and you just do what I make you do and say what I let you say. And uh, so it's a way of paying homage, but at the same time maybe compensating for... Um, <laughs> For my my own my own um, shortcomings and uh, and I have to say that that since the play deals with with fairly weighty things as I mentioned depression, suicide attempts, and whatnot uh, I, it was important to me to make it come many ways to mm-hmm. make it humorous in many ways and, and to lighten the, to lighten the subject and 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 uh, explore the the human dimension of of the relationship. so the math was uh, a background which i didn 't feel I had to um, which i didn 't feel I had to do. A great deal of uh, outside consulting
0: and how did you come to name the play uh, partition
3: well it, it was because one of the uh, one of the theorems that uh, Romaningen and Hardy worked on was called the partition theorem and uh, and so it, it, the, the word just seemed to me a, a good metaphor for the various separations um, between the characters uh, in temperament and in, in culture and background and so it, it it you know here are two people that come together but ultimately uh, have to have to part from each other and so it it just seemed it just seemed like a, a resonant metaphor.
0: So could you tell us a little bit more about the play? Um, when did you start working on it?
4: It's been a year, I think. Is that right? A little yeah. over a year. Yeah. Yeah. Since I first read the play and we began corresponding and uh, we did the workshop last August. I see. And but we had already committed ourselves to doing the play in, as part of our season, so we had already announced it in our brochures and things like that. So that's uh, it's it's been a fairly well it's been about a year.
0: So now that you've reviewed and uh, experienced the play, what are your impressions on mathematicians and uh, scientists?
4: I like them a lot. <laughs> I've never known that many mathematicians before. <laughs> I've met I've met more in the process of doing this play than than ever before and they're they're charming people they're very witty they're very smart they're they're uh, interested in what they do and that's that's kind of great you know
0: well i think mathematicians are uh, more human than we're often led to believe
4: oh certainly <laughs> and before this the only mathematician if she could be called that that i could remember was my fourth grade math teacher whom i didn't get along with at all you know? <laughs> so i really i needed to have some corrective experiences <laughs>
0: Well, one last question about the play. Uh, you mentioned that Ramanujan had succumbed to depression, like uh, other great thinkers. Could you elaborate on that a little bit?
3: Well, when he was in England, he was of course cut off from from his culture. Um, he uh, he had come from South India, which which uh, is is a place which, uh, as, as I understand, is um, what should I say, sort of self-contained in many ways in, it, in its culture. From what I've read, a little bit different from from northern India, which seemed more cosmopolitan. Mm-hmm. And, um, and you know, he was somebody who ate with his fingers. I mean, he came to, he came to England, and of course, he couldn't live the way he had lived back back home. And uh, and there there weren't too many people he could relate to, um, Cambridge and uh, and London. And uh, he was lonely. He was isolated. And, uh, he wasn't eating right, he was vegetarian, and, uh, and, and he, he couldn't get the foods. World War one broke out during his stay in England, and he couldn't get the fruits and vegetables that he needed, and, and, uh, his health deteriorated. And Hardy was not the kind of person, uh, who could reach out to him and, and, and deal with his emotional needs, his loneliness, and, and his isolation. I mean, Hardy was, was an eccentric, uh, he was, uh, um, Somebody who uh, wouldn't look at himself in a mirror. He, you know, he had he had many uh, eccentricities, and uh, he wasn't the kind of person uh, w- with whom uh, anybody, certainly not Ram- could could ever relax or feel comfortable. And uh, and so I, I think the isolation um, hurt Ramanujan tremendously. So there were physical and psychological reasons for his deterioration.
0: Okay, I guess we're running a little bit out of time. Um, are there any last comments you'd like to add?
4: One thing that I discovered just the other day fascinated me. The, someone in the cast, um, the man who's playing Hardy, as a matter of fact, uh, corresponded with the master of Trinity College, the current master, mm-hmm. who agreed to send us two Trinity College ties that the huh. characters could wear in the play. And this man, who is now the master of Trinity College, is an Indian. And I found that fascinating.
0: That's a wonderful irony. Wow. <laughs> Small world, huh? Yeah. And Partition is premiering at the Aurora Theater, uh, the one on Addison,
4: right? It is on Addison, 2081 Addison. It's right next to the Berkeley Rep.
0: Okay, and it previews on the 11th. It opens on the 17th.
4: That's right. And it Mm -hmm. runs for... It runs through the middle of May. I think we close on the 17th or 18th of May.
0: Well, Mrs. Oliver, Mr. Holtman, thanks for being with us on Berkeley Rocks today. And we were just talking to the director and playwright of Partition, a story about two mathematicians... G.H. Hardy and Ramanujan. Petition will open on April 17th at the Aurora Theater in downtown Berkeley. You're listening to Berkeley Rocks here on 90.7 FM. Come find out how the Grand Canyon was formed, so stay tuned.
5: how the Grand Canyon was formed? They can be found in everyday science.
2: Believe it or not,
5: the Grand Canyon wasn't always so
2: grand.
5: Let's travel back in time to the Cenozoic era, where it all began about five to ten million years ago. You'd hardly notice this wide, flat plain as the American West we know today. No Rocky Mountains, no Grand Canyon, just... just some groundbreaking events. During the Cenozoic Era, turmoil under the Earth's surface caused its terrain to shift around, sometimes violently. As these giant plates pushed together, the tremendous pressure forced blocks of Earth upward, which explains how plateaus were formed. But what about canyons? Hey, this might have something to do with it. It's the Colorado River, or at least an early ancestor of the great river that eventually formed the Grand Canyon. You see, after the land shifted upward into plateaus, it created cracks and fractures in the earth, which were perfect paths for rivers like the Colorado to follow downward toward the sea. As the Colorado picked up speed, it carried boulders and other debris, slowly wearing a path through the layers of limestone, sandstone, and other rock. Over time, that path became a wide, deep gorge. Let's return to the modern era and see what we've got. Now that's a Grand Canyon, 277 miles long and about a mile deep, located in the heart of its own national park, which, by the way, is larger than the state of Rhode Island. Well, thanks for wondering about one of the seven natural wonders and for being a part of everyday science. Everyday science is part of Bayer Corporation's national education program, making science make sense.
1: Wow, you know, I'd like to see the Everyday Sciences Ladies Grand Canyon.
0: <laughs> you mean the, uh, those big clefts, right? <laughs>
1: I don't know if it's we're talking about the Grand Tetons.
0: Oh okay. or we're
1: talking about the Grand Canyon. Yes. But anyway <laughs> Everyday Science Lady, you're you're killing me with this. Jeez. <laughs> Grand Canyon. Woo. Alright, now here's the crazy Scotsman with the answer to last week's question of the week. Oh, thank you very much, Frank. It's no really a great pleasure to be here again, telling you the answer to last week's question of the week. Uh, you know, it's sort of a trouble when I'm walking around the highlands and I'm wondering, where the heck am I? It's not really all that great walking around the highlands and seeing all this grass and greenery. It all looks the bloody same. If only I had one of those GPS systems, how do they freaking work? Well, I'll tell you, no, it's using satellite technology and triangulation. Aye, we have the satellites up in space, which you know where they are? and. You have a beacon down in space which it knows where it is and as you move around it can triangulate your position by knowing where it is and where the beacon is and thus the GPS system works and know you can find Loch Ness in a monster. Okay
0: and now here is uh, Tokyo Kid with this week's question of the week. What is the daylight savings? Well you know we in we folks in uh, Tokyo here are uh, 17 hours ahead of you guys in the west coast USA but uh, it seems on a Sunday something extraordinary happened. It happened that you had the uh, Daylight Savings sp- uh, Spring Forward in which now you are only 16 hours behind us. What happened? You must be time traveling, eh? If you know why, you can email us at groks at hotmail.com. You want to win anything, but uh, you might be on time.
1: And that's all for this week's edition of Berkeley Grox. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology.
0: If you'd like to contact us here at Berkeley Grox, you can email us at grox at hotmail.com. For Berkeley Grox, I'm Frank Lee.
1: And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grox.net. Have a great afternoon and stay tuned for more music with your host, Mr. Pixel.